Hi, you're listening to the Indie Bookshelf podcast with me, Holly, and me, Amy, as we champion the indie book industry, from independent authors and publishers to independent bookshops. We have a range of literary discussions and book recommendations to indulge your love for all things bookish. In today's episode, we discuss a brand new five-star historical fiction book published by indie publishers Duckworth Books. Yes, we'll be celebrating the book Hester, written by Laurie Leaker Albanese. So make yourselves comfortable and let's dive right in. Cool. Holly, could you introduce the book? I would be absolutely delighted to. I'm super excited um, to let you know about Hester. I'm going to pick it up now. Um, so this is an amazing historical fiction book. Uh, written by the author Laurie Leaker Albanese. Um, she's written three other books um, to date, um, and this is her uh, newest book. It's an absolute stunner. Um, and I'm just going to have a moment where I'm going to appreciate the book cover because it is so beautiful. Um, if you haven't uh, seen it, it has this gorgeous, if I, if I describe it for you, this gorgeous uh, black background with these sort of roses and climbing plants all over it um and then a beautiful sort of white title of hester across the middle it is just a thing of beauty amy could you potentially sort of summarize for our listeners who may not have read um this book what hester is all about potentially i can and open it because then i have a little frame of reference well if you haven't read it uh stop listening and go and read it now um because it is fantastic uh, it's inspired by The Scarlet Letter and is a, a feminist retelling following a young Isabel, a seamstress who travels from Scotland to America, Salem, and her no good husband leaves her penniless. The story follows her through uh, falling in love whilst also trying to achieve her dreams of being a seamstress, making dresses. Um, she's got an amazing gift of um, for embroidery, as well as a, the, well, it's described as a gift throughout of synesthesia. I'm not sure if they use the actual term. It would make sense if they didn't. But anyway, it's delightful. <laughs> really, really lovely. Yeah, it's just an amazing insight into America in the 1800s. Um and and especially a sort of a woman's perspective of what living through that era was. Um, I'm just actually going to pick up on that term synesthesia because um, some of our readers may know what this term means and be familiar with it. Um, some others may not. So I'll just sort of give a bit of a, a brief description of what that is right now. Um, I'm going to be using the um, note to the reader that Laurie Lee Carabonese, the author of this book, um, uses at the beginning of her book to kind of talk about it. So I'll be basing my description off that, but obviously paraphrasing it and, and adapting it for, for the podcast. So synesthesia, if you haven't come across it before, is a, a phenomenon which is all about the senses. Um, it affects about 10% of the world's population. So it's a, a pretty substantial minority there um, who may have some degree of synesthesia. Um, so someone with synesthesia often experiences multiple sensory responses when only one sense has been stimulated. So whereas somebody normally might, um, you know, see words and just see 
you know, the words somebody with synesthesia might then hear the words as music or might see the words as colours or have another sense that is then brought into that experience. So as one kind of, you know, popular example, the painter Kandinsky saw colours when he listened to music as one example of that. Now, obviously, today, this synesthesia is a, is a well-known thing. It's It's something that, you know, medical professionals and a lot of the public may know about but actually obviously in the past this was not really a known phenomenon so when Laurie Lico Albanese writes this historical fiction book she's she's basing it in a time and a place when people will have experienced synesthesia but won't have had that label to describe it and so for them these experiences are, are mystifying they're inexplicable, they're potentially related to the supernatural realm, witchcraft, uh, or a sort of godly gift, and, and they interpret it in that sense sort of throughout the book. And the main form of synesthesia that's really experienced in this book, Hester, is called grammar-colour synesthesia. So that's when letters are associated with colours. So the main character, when she sees the letter A, she sees it as the colour scarlet and she's baffled by the idea that people can see the letter A but in black. But this is obviously something that brings her a huge amount of grief as well as the richness that um, it brings to her life as well, just simply because the world at that time didn't really understand it. So that's your kind of introduction to synesthesia and one of the, the main themes of the book. I think that was fabulously handled. Went and full, full on little teacher mode then, didn't I? You did do. <laughs> An education. Look at that. <laughs> we thought um, um, as a good a good basis for beginning this discussion was not to give our own thoughts, but to start with the thoughts of other people because they're there and we can just read them. Um, so this first quote is from Gillian Flynn, who is an author, and she writes, like the greatest historical fiction, it's a story about America itself and the fury, righteousness and mercy in which it was formed. This page-turning and poignant novel beautifully imagines the untold life story of the woman who went down in literary history wearing a scarlet letter, Alice Elliot Dark, author of In the Gloaming. Brilliant. And the last quote we have is from Fiona Davis, who is the New York Times bestselling author of Magnolia Palace and the Lions of Fifth Avenue, and she calls uh, Hester a masterpiece, no less. Um, so her quote is, a masterpiece that should be required reading along with Hawthorne's classic tale of adultery, enthralling, ambitious, and a total knockout. So um, if you don't believe our recommendation, there you have, you know, five-star recommendations all over. We, we cannot rate this book highly enough. Um, but now that we've given you that that overall little glimpse, we're going to delve in more. slightly more. We exactly. You always need more with a with a book recommendation, don't you? You need to get to the juicy bits, like yeah. you know, You're around the, 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 exactly. So, uh, without further ado, I think let's start with our favourite aspects of this book. So, um, Amy, I'm, I'm intrigued to hear what what were your favourite aspects of this book? Oh, so many. I was from page one. I think partly because I like I'm a crafter myself, so reading a book that's so immediately immersed was immersed in craft. I mean, I have yarn right here. Um, 
So just reading a book that that Fibercraft was was woven through its core was was brilliant. But on a more literary level, um, it's it's the attention to detail. It's the fact that that scattered throughout, just so the kind of effort, effortlessness that shows that so much effort was put into it. If that makes mm-hmm. sense. That's, yep. Um, there are details of how that craft would have been done at the time and how just how life would have happened for Isabel as she's going about her time. Um, the details in in the clothing, in what people were eating, in social structures, just all of these and the language, this attention, fine attention to detail is beautifully well researched for me. That's the the peak of this book. Mm. I think that's always the the mark of a a masterpiece of historical fiction, really, isn't it? Is mm. is how well it really immerses you in that world and transports you there. It's almost it's a bit like fantasy, but in in the past rather yes. than in yeah. an alternative reality. In that, actually, when it's so well done, you, you just feel like you're living in mm. that world and breathing in it, and and you can picture what it's like to to be yeah. there and live there um, and standing at just 316 pages in the hardback to have that level of of world building is what it is mm, even yeah. though it's, it's the real world it's the past and it's it's an imagined version of the past to have that level of world world building that makes it so rich but so succinct and concise uh that it it adds color to the story rather yep. than than filling you in filling you in on the context before starting the story um it's just expertly crafted mm. what Definitely. about you what was your favorite bit um i think i'm going to draw out two things actually and one of them i think relates a bit to yours and that was this felt like a really rich book and i and I'm thinking particularly there, sort of as an author, one of the pieces of advice you get given is show, don't tell. So I can't just tell you I'm walking from A to B. I need to somehow show you how I'm walking from A to B so that you as the reader can know what it's like to walk and imagine yourself walking with the character in the book. And I think what Hester does is it brings those senses, it brings that that showing rather than telling and just an amazing way so that you you really do feel the colors and the sounds and the and the sights and the smells and somehow it, it's very tangible it's very it's very sensory as an experience to read the book in a very rich way and in a way that for me is actually sets this book I think apart from a lot of others that I've read which you know are brilliantly well crafted and fantastic in many other ways but this somehow was a it was a sensory experience reading it. And that I think really stood out as something that was like, wow, this is this is something special and unique about this book. But yes. I think the other thing I'm just gonna highlight, and I don't worry, no spoilers, but I really love the ending. I think endings are incredibly hard to write, a satisfying ending, funnily enough. And I was quite worried about the direction this book was going, that I I was sort of hoping it would have a good ending but I couldn't see how she was going to resolve all these different strands in a way that was going to feel satisfying to me as the reader who's just followed 
you know, Isabel through this, you know, epic saga of her life. And I really wanted it to have that conclusion that was going to feel good at the end. And if I'm honest, I didn't have enough faith in Laurie Lee Albanese until I got to the end and it was just exactly what I would have wanted for the main character. And I think that is a real skill as well, that you that ending was not the conventional end, perhaps, but it was still so satisfying. Um, and I think that takes an immense amount of skill and left me feeling really good at the end of the book, which, let's be honest, is, is one of my aims when I read a book. <laughs> of our aims as a publisher. Indeed. Yeah, you want to bring your readers joy, right? <laughs> it's a, a key component of the of the reading process. Mm. So with all that, what, what for you is, or who for you is your favourite and or most interesting character? I know, um, I wrote this question and then I, I was immediately then thinking about what I would answer. And I think it's slightly unfair because there's one character who just jumps out straight away. So I'm really sorry, Amy, if I've stolen this answer from you. And it is the obvious answer. It, it's the main protagonist. It's, it's Hes- Isabel. And I think well, there are lots of other really, you know, deep and interesting characters in the book. But I think what, what, make, what stands Isabel apart is really the depth to which you enter into her, into her life in this book. And she's a very complex character navigating her experience of synesthesia and how that affects how she moves through the world and how she experiences it and how other people then may judge her or elevate her or pay her because of this gift that she has. And I think, yes, this is a feminist story and and it has, you know, deep gender and also racial themes woven throughout it. But I think it's also so amazing to have a book which actually deals with a sensory phenomenon that actually that is as much a part of Isabel's personality in her quest to find um, a good life for herself as her gender is as well. Um, and so I think that gives it a really an extra dimension, I guess, on top of the gender sort of theme that is also very skillfully done throughout the book. But yeah, what about you, Amy? What's who was your most your favourite or most interesting character? You didn't actually steal my answer. Oh, really? Oh, no. Hooray. I do I do <laughs> want to dwell on a moment longer on Isabel, who I think, and this might be the editor in me, is a beautifully well-handled main character. And especially, I think, a well-handed, naive main character. Mm. Um, she's... She's not naive in in the traditional sense of naivety. She she's strong willed and she knows what she wants and where she's going or where she sees herself going. So it's not it's not one sided naivety, but there's certainly a naivety in how she what she expects of relationships, um, mm. and it's 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 that that level of naivety that, that runs her into trouble throughout the story. This this trusting nature that she has with some people, and I think writing a, a naive character is an incredibly diff- difficult skill to have um, without without having the reader reading the book and screaming at this main character that they're doing the obviously wrong thing. Because in actual fact, at every point. We are empathizing and sympathizing with her decisions and the position that she's been put in. 
so yes the empathy that that laurie creates for the main character is is stunning but my uh favorite character or at least the most interesting character for me is widow higgins mm-hmm. um, oh interesting interesting i mean i guess i just i i like the kooky reclusive type maybe that's what it is <laughs> but actually i think so there are a lot of themes in the, in this book and again for a book of this length and a historical fiction at that of this length to deal with so many themes and still be concise about all of them fantastic but especially widow higgins who manages to embody quite a lot of those themes so in her character she embodies this fear of the supernatural and she embodies the superstition and the um sexist attitudes of the people around her and the themes of deceit and secrecy uh, she carries it all in her and she walks around like a, a mirror of the whole book it seems and I think just distilling an entire set of themes into one character so artistically I, I makes her such an interesting character because she seems at first glance be a bit of an aside and a bit of like a she pops up every so often to add some add some color to the story. But when you look closely at her, what what she is there for is is to convey these themes and to to show how in lots of the characters, each of them are relevant. That's my answer. Ah, no, that's that's a really that's a really great answer. Um and yeah, she's she's a fantastic character. Um and yeah, I guess quite minor in terms of the plot, but major in terms of the themes that she represents and the I guess almost the foil as well to Isabel mm. um and, and to the reader. Um, I do want to just shout out another name just because I, I have to mention this other character, and that's the character of Mercy, um, who is this incredibly strong black woman who is just this. I mean, in some ways, she's she's the non-naive version of Isabel, um, in that she's navigating, okay, she's navigating race rather than synesthesia, but she is she's the the strong-willed woman who also knows about the world and who has found a groundedness and a rootedness in the world despite all the obstacles that has been put in her way and so I suppose in some ways she can come across as maybe slightly less complex but she is just this fantastic if I say you know when you almost meet a character you feel safe with like you know when they're in a scene like it's gonna be okay (laughs) she has almost that that kind of presence in the book um, and I just wanted to to highlight, you know, how, again, how important it is to have these, you know, strong characters who aren't from a white background. But, you know, she's um, and Mercy has a, a really interesting sort of connection with the the slave trade and how she's now trying to navigate helping other people out of that and navigating how other people perceive her because of um, her skin colour. And, yeah, I just wanted to give that give Mercy a highlight because. Um, she's a fantastic character and yeah just has this warmth I guess this warmth and this vitality to her and, and just yeah. to add add to the strength the same with um with Isabel's naivety it's not it's not a a strength that lacks depth it's not a 
dimensionless strength because throughout the novel we see her being vulnerable as well vulnerable in her strength and vulnerable without without you know the the her usual confidence so again like at no point does this this woman Laurie no, no point does she rely on two-dimensional stereotypes archetypes of, of women womanhood and what it is to be a woman um every woman has behaves differently and has different traits in the the different circumstances that they they move through which i really love it's it's so thoughtful in how it depicts life and yeah. femininity yeah and interesting that you know there we've just picked out three amazing female characters in this book um each of whom actually has really their own dimension their own way of um navigating being a woman um in 1800s in Salem in America and yet have these relationships with one another um which I think brings us quite nicely on actually to talk about the themes of the book I think we've we've talked about femininity and feminism quite a bit but maybe we want to um just delve into a few of the other themes we find um in Hester I don't know whether you want to kick us off, Amy. You do have you've written you've written quite a good list, and as I said before, there's there are so many themes in this book, and each are handled with such care and attention. Mm. It does like it's rich. It makes you feel like you're reading a six hundred page book, but then all of a sudden you're at the end. So one of the one of the really strong themes I think throughout is is the is the trauma. And you mm. see that. So the way the story is told is when we're mostly with Isabel and we're following her through her childhood to her young womanhood. Um, because it's it's important to remember at no point in this book is she a fully fledged adult even by, by today's standard. Mm. And yet she faces all of this, all of these hard decisions and awful circumstance that we see her go through. But alongside that is this story of her ancestry. And we see her her ancestors, the women that back in her through her family, and their trials with witch trials, witch hunts, and how that's influenced not only them, but but generations. And you see the story of like this this generational trauma and how that manifests in Isabel's life. And how that informs every decision she makes, and it informed her upbringing and her mum and her mum's upbringing. And it's so subtly done that if you're not paying attention to it, you you might just miss it. Mm. But when you are, you you realise how. Yes, these trials were hundreds of years ago, but but they're still they're still the trauma of that is still carrying on down through these families. I think that was just an exceptional theme and, and I think quite a rare one as well to I love I love how the book not only how it deals with sort of Isabel's navigating of that generational trauma and the fact that she's descended from women who've been seen as witches because of the synesthesia but also um how being in Salem and how the the roots and you know you've got people in Salem living in Isabel's time in the 1800s some of whom were the ones who were prosecuting the witches and some of whom were the victims or the families of the victims. And they're all still living together and they don't really talk about the trauma. Um, and yet that that trauma is really is really present in Salem at this time. And 
um, especially that comes out through the character of um, Nathaniel, Nathaniel Hathorne, um, who is, a, is about ends up having a relationship with, and he is tormented by the fact that his ancestors used to, you know, try and kill the witches or the, the perceived witches, obviously. And he's sort of trying to navigate that trauma and how that affects his mental health, really. Um, not that he would describe it in that way. Um, and his sense of um, what he wants to achieve with his life or feels like he can't achieve with his life. And I think it's it's a, it's a really timely, I think, theme to explore in our world as well, you know, whether it be through our collective experience of COVID or whether it be through our collective experience of racial injustice um, in the wake of, you know, George Floyd, Floyd's death and Black Lives Matter and the fact that, you know, some of us have been the, the descendants of the colonizers, some of us are the descendants of the colonized and and dealing with that trauma that that brings and that that, that lasting legacy. I think this is a book that explores that, but through the theme of witchcraft in the past. And I think we have a lot to learn about it as a society and can and can access that through works of fiction like this, which is just awesome. I think I'm just going to pick up one more theme and that is the theme of what does it mean to have a loving relationship? I think this is a question that um, Isabel struggles with throughout the book is she, what, what is love? And I guess that, that ties into this naivety you're talking about that she often doesn't really recognise what a loving behaviour might be. But I thought that was a really interesting question. And again, quite a timely one, maybe one that we ourselves are grappling with. Something that's very relatable is like, what, 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 is, what is love? What does that look like? What does it mean in the context, in this case, of a romantic relationship or in terms of platonic friendships? And I think it's really intriguing to see that that theme brought out so explicitly in that in this book and in a really deep way. You know, it's not a it's not dealing with love on if I call it quite a rom-com, maybe quite a happy go lucky level. It's really delving deep into that question, asking, well, what does it mean in the nitty gritty of life that isn't always easy? And again, I think that that. um theme of love ties into the theme of trauma we see snippets of her relationship with her mother and we we know that there's love there uh, but we don't know whether that's necessarily healthy especially in the treatment of of isabel's uh stenesthesia and her colors as she calls them and then we we travel most of the book assuming that her and her father have a very good relationship. And then there's a, a line in the book that refers to her being sent to the white on white embroidery house, um, cast off there because of her poor circumstances and her father not shielding her from that. Um, whereas a previous mention of that hadn't been quite so scathing, and it starts to call into question her relate her loving relationships between her parents and and all of the things that have been portrayed before, and perhaps that's what's feeding into her um, unhealthy dependence on these these men, um, Edward and Nathaniel. Um, yeah. As as we as we see then, um, and again, it just brings more. It brings more legitimacy and more empathy to the naivety that she displays mm. in the choices that she makes with how and who she loves. There are so many themes, but each of them 
either mirror or play off or tie into one another in such a, a delicate and well, it's like a tapestry. Mm. Yes, <laughs> what a beautiful metaphor to, to end that section on. That was exquisitely done and not scripted. I'm just going to shout that out. But, um, that was, that was pure Amy anyway. genius right there. Um, <laughs> um, I'm intrigued to, to hear, was there anything that you weren't such a fan of or that you thought could have been improved at all? I'm not very good at reading, reading for leisure and looking for, for points to improve. I like to switch off that part of my brain mm-hmm. when, I'm, when I'm reading for having a nice time. But certainly I can, I can speak to what I wasn't a fan of. And that doesn't mean that it's not good or even right. Because, because what I wasn't a fan of was, was the, ro- the romance. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's definitely a me thing. I'm not a big reader of the genre. Many of the books I read uh, outside of, you know, what I have to read. I don't even have a romance subplot. Uh, so seeing seeing this main character get handed off from love interest to love interest at times got a bit tiring. What I want is to, like, see an independent woman flourish um, because that's any less of a cliche. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but but then obviously when I go back and reflect on it, I realize I'm just being cynical and miserable because this romance is so key and so integral to all of the other themes that I love. Um, and maybe I should be less miserable. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but yes, uh, the, the thing that I wasn't a fan of in this book is that I'm a miserable person. <laughs> <laughs> You're not a miserable person, but I, I do think... Um... And the romance that sort of ends up blossoming near the end of the book, I think, was one of the least um, crafted, maybe, elements of this book. This is a book, as we've sort of mentioned, that has such attention to detail and really goes into depth in so many areas. I, I, I kind of, I do agree that, like, the way that it, that it builds that romance, especially towards the end of the book, I don't think was maybe the most developed part of that detail that you find in other areas. Although I'm a lover of romance, I would happily read rom-coms all day long. So I, I can't say that I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> um, yeah. I've got space. Think... I've got space and time for rom-coms. <laughs> to be honest, I'm not sure that there was anything I wasn't a fan of. I, I really struggled with this. I think the, the only thing I would say is that maybe this is maybe, a, this is a book that makes you think. And it's a book that, has very deep themes and not a lot of lightheartedness running through it. And that is not something that I see as bad about this book. It's it's just the type of book it is. And so I think it would just more be a caution to anybody who likes your lighthearted vibe that maybe this isn't the the book that's a natural fit for you. Maybe it's something that you want to read to experience maybe something a little different. It's certainly not dark or gory. And I'm not trying to portray it as that in any sense. But I do think it it's it's a deep book and it's not a if I say fun and lightheartedness aren't the central, that's not what the author's trying to do with this book. She's trying, I think, right, my experience was that she was trying to immerse us in that world. 
and help us explore some of those themes in this context. And that necessitates that actually it's quite a, it's a book that engages your, if I say your body and soul, it's not a kind of light entertainment read. Now that doesn't mean I'm not a fan of it. It's just, I guess, a something that it, it may or may not be what you want to read if you want to cuddle up for a cosy afternoon on a Sunday um, and just not think for two hours. It, it's, it's, a, it's a different kind of book to that. So I guess I just sort of put that out there. Is that fair? It's fair. That's your experience of the book. <laughs> on the other hand i found it incredibly joyful to read <laughs> I, there was a there was a parallel in nathaniel and um isabel there's a parallel of his only seeing the darkness in the world and everything having to be tied to darkness and her but where does the joy of love come into that why isn't love just joy so i think that's that's like where you're what what what's feeding into it for you is that it isn't pure joy all the way through there's certainly a discussion of what's joyful and when should it not be and should we be escaping or should we be facing reality and is reality bleak so yeah no i can see where you're coming from in that there are <laughs> it's, it's a book that engages your brain yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's that's what i'm trying to say the joy that it brings is how <laughs> i would summarize it I think I just want to give um, a couple of shout outs um, or we want to give a couple of shout outs. Sorry, I'm, I'm hogging the eye there. Uh, we want to give a couple of shout outs. Wrote script. <laughs> um, first of all, we just want to celebrate Laurie Lee Albanese, the author of this book. I hope, as you've probably heard by now, we were a fan of her work um, in this book. Um, just to say a little bit about her, if you're interested. So she's written three historical fiction novels and she's also published a memoir. And each of her books, this is incredible, has been chosen for the Indie Bound list by independent booksellers, which is just amazing. She lives in New Jersey. And if you want to check her out, um, her website, that is www.laurieleecoalbanese.com. If you're not sure how to spell that, don't worry, the link will be in the show notes. So that will be accessible to you there. We also want to give a shout out to Duckworth Books. They are one of the oldest independent publishing houses in the UK. So a big, big uh, publishing house to look up to for us. Uh, they're celebrating 125 years since they were founded. So huge history. They're a small team under managing director Pete Duncan. And they specialize in nonfiction and historical and literary fiction books. Everything that they put out is just delightful. So definitely look them up at www duckworthbooks.co.uk, which will also be in the show notes. Wonderful. So that um, wraps up our uh, book recommendation of Hester by Laurie Lee Carbonese. Um, we hope you've enjoyed our literary discussion um, and that you, if you're interested in historical fiction, that you might give Hester um, a chance. Um, and go and get it we can 100% recommend it um so just to wrap up I think we'll just give you a little update on Asteria Press what we're doing so we're currently in the middle of oh this has been a saga trying to get our website out it is all ready to go apart from a technical issue which has resulted in a slight delay in it being actually put out on the public domain but we are super excited to be launching our website hopefully coming out this Friday potentially next week which is probably when you'll actually be listening to this podcast anyway so 
hopefully you can now go and see our website hooray at www.asteriapress.com so that has been a big task yeah go check us out it's very exciting also for those of you who aren't listening right now the transcript of this podcast and all of our podcasts are available on the website so i guess if you are listening you don't really need that but if you're not go check it out <laughs> adam Edward, you just want to give a little update as to the editing as well for our first novel that Asteria Press is publishing this year. What a horrible thing to have me do. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Just to remind Um, you of, you know, your work. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the editing is underway. We are just over a month down now. Uh, Holly hasn't seen any of it, so I'm sure that she's besides herself with excitement or uh, anxiety. One of the two. The suspense is real. I'm just going to put that out there. (laughs) I am having a lovely time. I assure you of that every week. (laughs) You you do a very good job of reassuring me. I'm so pleased. You can expect a full blog post, uh, well, it'll be this week, on my experience of editing. Right now I'm deep in the plot, waiting around, basically pulling apart and... I don't know, imagine me like waving wires around and that's that's about what I'm doing. <laughs> well, I'm more articulate in the blog post, so go and read about it there. <laughs> uh, I, I have seen the blog post. I can I can confirm it's a cracking read um, and you've made my book sound a lot more exciting than I think I would have pitched out. <laughs> so uh, thank you for that. <laughs> Quite the same. So uh, if you want a little... Um, if you want a little glimpse into Dragon Outlaw and into Asteria Press and Amy's work with editing, um, especially developmental editing, then um, go give that a read um, on our website, no less. Um, so that's super exciting. And um, we'll be back in a fortnight um, with our third episode. Goodness me, we're on episode three already um, oh, of the Indie Bookshelf. Our current working title is What Makes a Book Magical? Um, that means that you've turned down not- my title. Huh? Does that mean you oh, you put the title in? Oh, excellent. I wasn't sure whether it was me or you and we hadn't discussed it. Okay, well, our, our title for, for two weeks' time has just been confirmed. You, you know, you're at the cutting edge of this, listeners, is what makes a book magical. If you have any thoughts, ping them to us. Um, you can get in contact with us via our website. I'm just going to you know, shout that out again. <laughs> and we'd love to hear your thoughts and opinions on that. I think that's everything. That is everything. And keep reading. Keep reading.